Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, I'm Dr Olivia Murphy. I'm in the English department at the University of Sydney. Before we begin the proceedings tonight, I'd like to acknowledge uh, and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. It was during Jane Austen's lifetime that the lives of the Gadigal people were changed utterly by the arrival of colonising British forces. While we remember their suffering and the crimes and injustice committed against them, let us also remember the bravery and compassion of the Gadigal. It was only through their knowledge and selfless care that the Sydney colony survived its first years. And we are here today through the wisdom, generosity and welcome to strangers they showed more than 200 years ago. We still have much to learn. Um, I'd like to thank Meredith Hall and the Sydney Ideas team for making tonight's poss uh, lecture possible and also the Humanities Research Centre at the Australian National University for making Devonese trip to Australia such a fantastic success. And thank you all for coming. Um, you're in for a real treat. Tonight's Sydney Ideas event commemorates the bicentenary of Jane Austen's death in July 1817. In her short life, Austen had an extraordinary and lasting impact on the development of fiction. She wrote six of the finest novels in the English language. But it's what happened next that's really fascinating. And so I'm delighted to welcome Professor Devaney Lozer to the University of Sydney. There is no one better to tell us about how an obscure Hampshire novelist became an unstoppable global industry. Uh, Devaney is Professor of English at Arizona State University, where she is also the faculty sponsor of the university's roller derby team, and she skates under the nom de guerre, I think that's a, yeah, a stone cold Jane Austen. <laughs> Devaney is the author of many brilliant books on women's writing, including British Women Writers and the Writing of History, 1670 to 1820, and Women Writers and Old Age in Great Britain, 1750 to 1850. She's also the editor of Jane Austen and Discourses of Feminism, Generations, Academic Feminists in Dialogue, a critical edition of Jane West's 1796 novel, A Gossip Story, and the Cambridge Companion to Women's Writing in the Romantic Period. Lately, particularly this week, she's been in constant demand in the press. Um, just this week, she's been uh, interviewed by ABC Radio National, The New York Times, and CNN. Her latest monograph, published by Johns Hopkins University Press, is The Making of Jane Austen. You'll want to buy a copy up the stairs at the end of the event. Uh, it's only just out, but it's already garnered rave reviews. So this evening, Devon is here to tell us all about her latest discoveries and explain how Jane Austen became Jane Austen. So please join me in welcoming Devon. Thank you so much, Olivia, and thank you to Meredith Hall and the University of Sydney, especially the Sydney Ideas Program. I'm just so thrilled to be here. Uh, this is a, an important week for Jane Austen. I know that's probably what's brought some of you here, maybe all of you here. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I've been in a number of conversations this week with people who are having a hard time deciding what word to use to describe the 200th anniversary of Austen's death. Arguments about whether we should use the word celebrate, mourn, honor or something else to describe this mi milestone week for Austin and for us. Uh, I am all for celebrate. I'm just going to lay my cards out on the table. I don't think there's a whole lot of need for getting lugubrious. I think we are remembering a long dead author. And to me, that remembrance far outweighs any sadness about her death at age 41, even if it was an early death. How can remembering her writings be anything but a source of gladness for us, is my view. So whether you've been anticipating this week for years, you're recollecting Austin's place in literature or your life for the first time in ages, or perhaps there are even a few of you here who are learning about her for the first time, I say welcome to all and come join the party. So on that note, I want to give you a bit of a 
uh, insight flash into the book that I've just finished with some scenes. So let's, let's jump right in. Jane Austen. She may not require an introduction with greater re name recognition than any other author writing in English not named William Shakespeare. We may think we know Jane Austen, but what do we know? She completed six novels with Pride and Prejudice, the most famous among them. She never married. And when she died on July 18, 1817, 200 years ago this week, she was only 41 without any inkling that the modest literary fame she enjoyed in her lifetime would grow astronomically. And today, of course, she attracts avid admirers, sometimes called Janeites. These are indisputable things, but even our relentless repetition of them paints a particular picture. In choosing these details, we may be relaying facts, but we're also crafting a story of our own, one that emphasizes publication, marital status, modest expectations, longevity, and fandom. It's not exactly like putting together a kit, but in some sense, when we put these parts in a certain order, when we emphasize certain things and not others, we're making Jane Austen. And I should add that I do have this kit, but I, I know that if I would try to put it together, it would look so disappointing and awful that I have, I've, not, uh, I've not made the attempt myself. But you'll see that this is from 1977, and I just love this idea that you could make your own Jane Austen doll. So we're making Jane Austen, but when we try to grasp with any nuance the parts and the whole of the Jane Austen we think we may know, things get complicated very quickly. For instance, it's hard to imagine how this religious blog post version of Austen could have anything to do with this advertisement for gin. Well, it might not be so hard to imagine, especially if you were raised Catholic, as I was, but let's look at the fine print here. The image on the left goes along with the blog post, and among its ten reasons is number five, that Christian girls are relieved to find that neither sex nor sexual attraction is described, spoken of, or even alluded to in Austen's fiction. The image on the right is Austin as she's pictured on Bath Gin, which is marketed as a Jane Austen gin, and that gin's creator has claimed, actually, Jane Austen was quite a naughty girl. She liked her young men, and she liked her gin. Both of these Austens, the pious asexual saint and the winking boozy sinner, are in their own ways preposterous caricatures. Still, it would be a mistake to dismiss them out of hand. These images and thousands before them have informed and created our perceptions of the author. So it's not just her edifying moral lessons or the wickedness of her wit that we debate. Political differences over Austen's image matter too. And uh, you may or may not have seen this image a few months back. It's an illustration accompanying a story that went viral describing the alt-right's embrace of Austin in the United States. And so some of you may recognize Donald Trump's uh, characterizing uh, baseball hat there. But at the same time that that image circulates, so too does this one. <laughs> Again, maybe some others of you have followed some of the other Donald Trump news. So, uh, so which is it? Is Austin right or left? Is she judgy and prim? Is she flirty and dirty? Is she great literature, chiclet, all of the above? Which Jane Austen is your Jane Austen? And how did you come by your version of her? How exactly did we get here? Well, anyone who's waded into the troubled waters of Austen's reception history, and that is looking for patterns of how she's been received by readers and audiences over time, knows that she is a daunting subject to research. There's just so much out there to try to make sense of. And I really appreciate this quote, which tries to sum up the challenges. So much has been written and so much well-written concerning this Austen that there seems to be need for some sort of apology or explanation for putting forward any new volume. That's literary critic Walter Harris Pollock, and he published this line in 1899. <laughs> so I admit that I felt a little bit like Pollock when I began writing my just-published book, The Making of Jane Austen. People would ask me, is there really anything left to say about Austen's afterlife? How is your book going to be any different from this one or the other one? But I began writing anyway with a stubborn hunch. 
I suspected that in describing Austin's afterlife, we'd left out significant parts of how she became a household name. Now, received wisdom has it that Austin's wide popularity first heated up in 1870 with the publication of family writings and the approval of Victorian literary lions. Then it was said to have reheated in 1995 with the BBC TV Pride and Prejudice, Ang Lee's Sense of Sensibility, and other film and TV Austins. Colin Firth's wet white shirt Darcy performance indisputably changed Austin's image. I can tell your laughter you agree. It resulted in the characters getting a statue in the middle of a London lake. And some of you may know that this statue actually traveled across the ocean here to Australia and was in the Ripon Lee estate. Did anybody happen to see it there at the Ripon Lee estate? Anyone admit to traveling there to see it? Um, well, I contacted them recently and asked what happened to the Collins statue, and they told me that he was dismantled. So I think we can blame this on Australia very safely, <laughs> that you have dismantled the enormous Colin Firth statue. I guess I'm sure he would be very hard to store, so I don't, I don't think it was anything specifically to do with any feelings about Colin that he was dismantled. In any case, so the middle of the London Lake. So I wondered, did Austin's rise to fame really start as late as 1870? Did Austin have any Colin Firths or Emma Thompsons in the 19th century? It turns out that the answer is yes. There were dozens, hundreds of Austin-inspired illustrators, activists, educators, actors, politicians, playwrights, directors, and screenwriters active between 1833 and 1975 in what I think of as the middle period of Austin's afterlife that solidified her fame. But in describing that history, we'd come to rely on explanations that most prominently featured her cautious, conservative, collateral family descendants, other big-name authors, and well-heeled critics, most of them male. For years, we too often told the story in a way we might call top-down. We acted as if it were Sir Walter Scott, Thomas Babington Macaulay, Virginia Woolf, R.W. Chapman, and F.R. Leavis, who were responsible for showing us how to appreciate Austen. The endorsements of great novelists and critics were said to have made the masses see Austen as great for all. It was a kind of trickle-down economics theory of how our literary legacy was established. What would happen, I thought, if we told the story of Austen's rise to fame instead with unknown pop culture pioneers like Rosina Filippi, Constance Till, E. Hartcourt Williams, Winifred Mayo, or Helen Jerome at the center? As I learned, reorienting Austen's and our history this way reveals a lot that is new. So tonight I'll give you a taste of the few of the stories my book sets out to tell, digging down into them. I'll start with becoming Aunt Jane in Austen land and the pioneering reform-minded sisters, Constance and Ellen Hill. Next, I'll turn to a 1902 private men's club Austen-themed dinner party and what I'm calling mansplaining Jane Austen. Then I'll introduce you to one of the most important pop culture meets politics Austen advocates you've never heard of, Winifred Mayo, in stone-throwing Jane Austen. And finally, to end with a bang, a short history of how Mr. Darcy became sexy. So for the next 40 minutes or so, we'll zoom through some odd, fun, and little explored or unexplored territory to explain how Austin became an icon. I hope there will be something here for everyone. If one section of the talk isn't your cup of tea or your swig of gin, not to worry. Another section will follow it soon enough. But taken together, I hope these stories will help you think differently about how Austin came to mean something to you if she does and to many of us today. All right, becoming Aunt Jane in Austin land. Janeites like our pilgrimages, virtual and real. We even have a noted novel-turned-film that makes gentle fun of ourselves for it, Shannon Hale's Austin Land, with its Mr. Darcy-obsessed Janeite visiting a Jane Austen-themed Regency Disneyland. When did it begin, this Austen-inspired literary tourism, following in her footsteps, imagining her as close to us in order to get closer to her? It's difficult to date because visiting sites of dead authors emerged as a popular Victorian pastime. Even the famous engaged in it. Poet Alfred Lord Tennyson is said to have walked nine miles to Lyme in 1867 out of his love for Jane Austen's novel Persuasion. As soon as he arrived, he's said to have refused all refreshments, saying, now take me to the cob and show me the steps from which Louisa Musgrove fell. So Austin-inspired travelers like Tennyson multiplied. 
admirers of Austin Multiplied, but one 1902 book took it to a whole nother level. The book, Jane Austen, Her Homes and Her Friends, was a groundbreaking bestseller, a collaborative effort by a pair of unmarried sisters who were in their 50s at the time. The book was written by author Constance Hill and illustrated by Ellen G. Hill, self-declared ardent admirers of Austen. They describe how they hired a well-used horse-drawn carriage and retraced the author's steps through life. The result was a substantial book with 23 chapters, 45 illustrations. Now, it may seem ordinary enough to our eyes today in an age crawling with Austen guidebooks, but this title was not ordinary. The Hills book begins with an arrival in Austen land. With that, readers are whisked into a tale that hovers among biography, memoir, and fiction. Constance Hill begins as if she's narrating a novel. On a fine morning in the middle of September, a country chaise was threading its way through Hampshire lanes. In it were seated two ardent admirers of Jane Austen, armed with pen and pencil, who were eager to see the places where she dwelt, to look upon the scenes that she had looked upon, and to learn all that could be learned of her surroundings. The Hills book made the surroundings seem like a demarcated country. They not only gave it a name, they gave it a fantasy road sign in one of Ellen Hill's drawings. So as Constance Hill narrates, we fell asleep that night in the happy consciousness that we were really in Austin land. Their book brings readers to a figurative crossroads of their own creation, to somewhere between a real and an imaginary thoroughfare to meet Jane Austen. Austin land is a place that is no place, an amalgamation of wishes, settings, and books. Austin scholar Claudia Johnson has compared the Hills books and journey to uh, Alice in Wonderland, which I think seems an apt comparison. But what's amazing is that some of the things the Hills made up would become reality. There may be no wooden signpost today that reads to Austin land, but there are signs in Chawton, England for cars, directing motorists to Jane Austen's house, and signs for pedestrians for what's now called the Jane Austen Trail. Uh, I'm just curious, have, have many of you been here? Is this a place some of you have done this pilgrimage to? A few, a few of you, yeah. The Hills imaginary Austin land laid the groundwork for actual signs. Now before the Hills book, the most important volumes in Austin's life and writings had been published by her collateral descendants, as we've seen. Both of these works referred to Jane Austen as Aunt Jane. She was Aunt Jane to these men. They famously characterized her as a harmless, cheerful, unambitious maiden aunt in the most polite, conservative terms. You can see that here in the quote from Austin Lee. We did not think of her as being clever, still less as being famous, but we valued her as one always kind, sympathizing, and amusing. Now these words may have been intended to honor her, but they also soften her, they tone her down, they contain her as acceptable and safe in an era in which middle-aged spinsters were regularly described as failed women. The Hills, as failed women themselves, didn't have the same motivations. They weren't Austin family descendants, but their book refers to Aunt Jane on nearly every other page. In this illustration, a mourner looks over Austin's tombstone. It may have been Ellen's artistic rendering of her sister Constance, but it could represent any middle-class woman. The Hills were the most vocal, powerful, and successful proponents of an Aunt Jane for all of us, or at least all then who had the leisure to read. Now, Constance Hill concludes of Austin, now her works are enjoyed by thousands of readers who owe to her some of the happiest hours of their lives. And this is, I think, a monumental assertion, imagining Jane Austen as a different kind of spinster aunt, the kind who labors to make the world better for thousands, an activist, charitable aunt, not just an aunt who serves uh, a few dozen nieces uh, or nephews. The Hills book is a kind of halfway house, I think, or maybe a gateway drug between the cozy early family biographies and legions of fans who would adopt Austin as their heritage, as their family member. What drove the Hills to create this kind of Austin? One theory is that they were drawing on their own family history. Their uncle, father, and great uncle were well-known liberal reformers. The men advocated for women's suffrage, penal reform, children's education, and eradicating poverty. Great uncle Matthew Hill lectured in villages to mixed sex audiences in the mid-19th century. 
advocating for women's suffrage as early as 1832. He also lectured on women novelists and held Jane Austen highest in his admiration, calling her a chrysolite without flaw. Constance and Ellen's father, Frederick Hill, and Uncle Roland Hill carried on the tradition of uh, family tradition of reform, but the family was also full of activist maiden aunts. Florence, Rosamond, and Joanna Hill. They were writers, speakers, suffragists, working to improve the lives of the homeless and convicts' children. Rosamond and Florence were themselves intrepid sister travelers who wrote the book What We Saw in Australia about their 16 months traveling unaccompanied here to investigate public service work and to visit their aunt. Um, I'm curious to know if this book still has a life here um, or not, if anyone reads it or has heard of it. But the parallels in undertaking and writing and in structure between the Elder Hills What We Saw in Australia and the Younger Hills, Jane Austen, her homes and her friends are striking. An elegiac poem refers to Rosamond as a warrior against guilt and ignorance. And it wasn't just their aunts. Constance and Ellen's mother, Martha Cooper Hill, worked with criminals, refugees, and schools for the poor, having early in life published moral stories for children. Martha Hill taught her daughters that women were held in a restraint and a subjection that was most unjust. Knowing this, I think, should have all of us rereading with fresh eyes Constance Hill's quotation that Austin must be beloved and celebrated by men and women with equal interest and on equal terms. Today, when we hear someone talk about Austin as if she's family, as if she's an Aunt Jane in Austin land, we shouldn't be quick to write it off as quaint or twee. Sure, for some, it's about choosing Austin in order to escape present problems to travel back to a supposedly safer, more comfortable past. For others, however, it's about visiting Austin land to carry forward projects of literary and social reform with an equal interest and in equal terms. Okay, mansplaining Jane Austen. In the same year that the Hill sisters were making Jane Austen into a people's aunt for thousands, a small group of prominent men were arguing over Jane Austen at an invitation-only club dinner. On May 27, 1902, a prominent private men's club called the Set of Odd Volumes gathered its 42 members and their male guests at Limmer's Hotel for an evening of Jane Austen. Limmer's, a once notorious dive bar frequented by the sporting rich, by then had transformed itself into a respectable establishment. Legend sometimes has it that Limmer's was where the, Tom's, uh, the drink the Tom Collins was invented. Uh, what's certain is that the place was once famous for gin punch. There's a real gin theme going through here tonight. Uh, not sure what to, uh, what to attribute that to. Personal failing, certainly. But the, the club, called SOV, or SET for short, was a social and dining group for enthusiasts of the writing, illustrating, and publishing of books. They would become known as one of the oldest and most conservative clubs without its own premises, but at the turn of the century, the scent was one of just about 200 private clubs, private men's clubs in London. The men of the set, as they called themselves, had dined together on the fourth Tuesday of the month since 1878. And when we say dining together, we might understand that to mean escaping their wives and families, listening to each other's long-winded lectures, singing very loudly, and drinking like fish. The sum of the men in this era were said to have belonged to so many clubs that they never dined at home. The set's famous members included the publisher John Lane, who brought out the Hills sisters Jane Austen, her homes, and her friends, and Vivian Holland, the son of Oscar Wilde, who had himself visited the set. One prominent guest in 1902 was Bram Stoker of Dracula fame. But many of the men, men born into privilege and consequence, had names now mostly lost to history. The first thing that the men did when they joined the set, or the brethren, as they called themselves, was to choose a club nickname. Now, the lectures the set gave to each other on these nights were on topics of all sorts, from neglected frescoes of northern Italy to Scottish witchcraft trials to, as you can see here, Tudor writers on husbandry. Uh, that is a topic I think that would drive me to drink, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but their May 27th gathering became known in the club's privately printed records as the Night of the Divine Jane. It was not a celebration of Jane Austen, but rather an attempted annihilation of her. 
The lecture was delivered by set member Walter Fruin-Lord, a man of the law who had been invalided out of the civil service in India. A surviving caricature of him as a brother of the set suggests that he looked the perfect stereotype of a self-serious male intellectual. He frequently published essays on the history of the novel and opinion pieces lamenting the breakup of the British Empire, which led him to publish a lamentation-filled book called The Lost Possessions of England. His club nickname was Domine, or Lord and Master. Jane Austen's fiction, Lord felt, was vastly overrated among his brethren, and he was going to tell them exactly why. Now, it's important to back up just a little bit and explain that this era had experienced a groundswell of elite male Austen loving. The feeling was so strong that some men feared expressing a contrary opinion. Novelist and critic Arnold Bennett claimed that men who criticized Austen were engaging in a dangerous activity. He said his clubs are filled with members who think Jane Austen is the only estimable author who ever lived. And as he put it, if anybody went for Jane, anything might happen to him. He would assuredly be called on to resign from his clubs. I do not want to resign from my clubs. I would sooner perjure myself, Bennett concluded. Now, many clubs featured collectible menus for their events, something the set of odd volumes took especially seriously, filled as it was with publishers and illustrators. And we'll look at the front of the menu in a moment. But here you can see from the inside what the evening promised. The Night of the Divine Jane featured Brother Walter Fruin Lord's lecture. The dinner itself was French, elegant, and lavish. Hors d'oeuvres, consomme, fish, veal, foie gras, beef, asparagus, souffle. Lord's talk, however, was British, bold, and spare. The set of odd volumes privately printed yearbook reports that Lord took the floor at dinner with a narrow table in front of him on which were displayed a set of uniformly bound of the works of Jane Austen with carefully arranged and disposed bookmarks in each. I like to imagine that it was this particular set, but there were other several possible Austen editions that might have been. After he read illustrative extracts, Lord declared that he would take revenge on his Janeite brethren brethren by repeating <laughs> by reading a paper of vast length and appalling dullness he said he would prose on until his voice was drowned in universal execration and they did apparently shout him down a sympathetic critic once described lord as best known as an especially severe critic of those women novelists the world ignorantly persists in placing in the front rank a less sympathetic one dubbed Lord a man who exercises his talents for destructive criticism. Austin was high on Lord's list for demolition. Now here's the front of the menu. It was designed by illustrator John Hassel, another member of the set, who clearly knew in advance what Lord would be arguing. Hassel created a busted bust of Jane Austen. A confused maid appears poised to clean up the mess of Austin's head smashed on the floor, broken there perhaps as a result of Lord's lecture destroying her reputation. And it's am amazing to me that this is before there really was a bust of Austin around. So this is imagining a, a bust that doesn't exist. Um, some of you may have seen there's now a statue of her that's just been unveiled this week, but this is 100 years ago when these were still imaginary things. So what's Hassel's, the illustrator's, attitude toward this destructive act? It's a little bit harder to tell, I think. But there's definitely some humor in his image, too. The question is, at whose expense? Now, after Lord's long lecture, a robust discussion ensued among the brethren. Two declared against Lord's arguments in unreformed condemnation. They suggested that Lord was on the side of the devil and a devil's advocate, and that he should retitle his paper to include the word diabolic. Not all were enraged. One member thought Lord must have been joking. Another confused Charlotte Bronte for Jane Austen. <laughs> Yet another gave a carefully prepared impromptu musical rendering of the spirit of Jane Austen's work, and I have a hard time imagining that was done sober. The men argued, they laughed. Then the private night of the divine Jane came to an end. Its effects, however, would reverberate in public. Lord's Austen-hating argument eventually saw print in a widely circulating prominent periodical, the 19th century and after. What started as a confrontational lecture among 40 clubbable men ended up five months later as a serious printed rant in the hands of tens of thousands. In print, Lord imagines both his audience and Jane Austen's enthusiasts as men. 
He complains that us devotees, more numerous with every year that passes by, stand round with drawn swords and compel our homage. He prefers his literature, he says, to be connected with great events, global conflicts, wars, things that really mattered. Lord makes his own politics very clear. He continues, all honor to Austin for not writing about what she did not understand, such as an imaginary mutiny at sea or an imaginary conspiracy of the colored folk. Lord's conservatism, his race-based privilege, and his bigotry leads to his dismissal of Austin, whose fiction he describes as hopelessly uninteresting. Lord ridicules Austin's supposed ignorance in geography by naming places that she never traveled to or mentioned, Japan, China, the South Seas. For Lord, the problem of Austin's fiction is that the masculine element is entirely lacking. If the phrase chick lit had been invented, surely he would have used it to whack her with. Now Lord in his print essay still seems to imagine himself as speaking to club men at a dinner. It does one make one wonder just how many Jane Austen essays published in leading periodicals in this period had their origins in private men's clubs. It could explain why so much of it appears to be written in a man-to-man, clubby, and knowing argo. These guys seem to imagine mansplaining, women's authors, mansplaining women authors to each other as a, conspe- a competitive sport. Um, but the word mansplain, of course, was also more than a century away from being coined. It was, however, in effect, what Lord was accused of in 1903, when a blistering response to his essay was published in the same journal. The 19th century and after published essays of many political stripes. Its noted founder and editor was architect Sir James Knowles, who also just happened to be Walter Fu and Lord's father-in-law. Interestingly, uh, Lord's wife, Millicent, also published several books for children, so this was a writing family. Now, one source claims that editor Knowles did not like his son-in-law very much. Perhaps that had something to do with the fact that the 19th century and after published a second Jane Austen essay that tore Lord a new one. Miss Annie Gladstone's January 1903 rejoinder was titled Another View of Jane Austen's Novels. Her essay rails against critics who would use the word feminine as a literary insult, maintaining instead To say that Miss Austen's work is feminine is indeed its highest praise. Literary genius, she argues, may be masculine or feminine. And as for Lord finding Austen's fiction uninteresting, the problem, she argues, is in the beholder's eye. We must not forget that when the subject is not interesting to us, we are really expressing not the defect of that subject, but our own limitations. We mean that we have little knowledge of it and less sympathy. Gladstone maintains that Lord is the one who is hampered with limitations, not Jane Austen. Now, Austen's female champion, Annie Martha Gladstone, was a single woman in her early 40s whose previous essays had all been published under a pseudonym. The daughter of a bank clerk, Gladstone lived with her parents and several talented siblings. She ran a small secondary day school for girls in a London suburb. Not long after her Austen essay appeared, her young first cousin, gifted mathematician John Raymond Wilton, came from his native Australia to England to study. Together, the cousins would read literature aloud. Dante was a favorite of both. And when Wilton proposed marriage to Gladstone on her birthday in 1908, it said she was taken by surprise. She was 50. Wilton was 24. She was concerned about their age difference and asked him to wait two years, and if he felt the same, to ask again. He did, and the two would marry in 1910 and move to Australia, to Adelaide, where she went on to publish essays under her married name. I tell the story not only because it's interesting, because it invites us to also rethink our stereotypes about the futures awaiting middle-aged spinster writers in the literary past. Now, I also want to say I was just in Adelaide before coming up here to Sydney, and I went to visit Annie Martha Wilton's grave um, and gravestone, and the it was the cemetery that had sent me this picture of the gravestone in that condition, and I had a hard time finding it. When I did finally locate it, it was, it was broken. Uh, it was busted in half and on the ground, and I just found this so strange after the busted bust of Jane Austen to now find <laughs> the busted gravestone of, of Annie, um, Annie Gladstone Wilton. But I've been in touch with the cemetery about trying to find the, um, the next of kin and, and try to get that righted. Gladstone Wilton doesn't seem to have written more on Jane Austen. 
but she deserves a more prominent place in histories of the author for that one tour de force essay alone. What's clear from the whole exchange is that Lord imagined that he and his brethren were setting the terms and tenor of debates about Jane Austen. The set not only imagined, but physically arranged its debate as one among men. But the likes of Annie Gladstone were forcing their way to the table through the periodical press. When Jane Austen was knocked off of her pedestal at a raucous men's club dinner in 1902, it wasn't only a working class woman cleaning up their messes. A female writer teacher, a bank clerk's daughter, charged to the fray too, warning Lord and others to start arguing less sloppily. All right, now we're into stone throwing Jane Austen. Not quite a decade after the men of the set of on volumes drunkenly argued over Jane Austen, a woman suffrage activist, Winifred Mayo, set out to wake up the club men. Now, window smashing for suffrage had begun in part in response to police brutality. The controversial rationale for breaking windows with rocks and hammers was to draw attention and be arrested quickly rather than to face a beating. At first, government windows were targeted, but the kinds of locations eventually expanded. The point was to demonstrate that the government cared more about windows than about women. Handwritten suffrage messages were often tied onto the rocks with string. These actions were polarizing within the women's suffrage movement itself. But on the foggy night in 1911, on which Winifred Mayo was participating in this protest, a group of militant activists decided that it would be a good thing to wake up the club men. They set out to break the windows of the elite men's clubs on Pall Mall. Now, suffragette Mayo chose a large glass pane door with no idea of which club lay behind it. She took a stone out of her pocket and hurled it. As she put it many years later in an interview she recorded with the BBC, to my great joy and satisfaction, it broke the window. She did not run. The point was to get caught and be imprisoned. The club's porter ran out and seized her, asking her what she was doing, and she explained her political purpose. Then he asked her, why the guards club? They don't know nothing about women's suffrage. Mayo responded, well, that's exactly my point. Now they will. When a policeman finally arrived on the scene, he said to Mayo, did you do that? Yes, she answered. What did you do it with? I did it with stones. Have you got any more stones, he asked. Yes, she replied matter-of-factly. Then, with the police officer holding one of her arms, she took a stone out of her pocket and broke another window. Mayo and 200 women were arrested that night, and that's her on the right with the arrow. She was imprisoned for two weeks. Mayo shared her glee in the interview years later that some of the young guardsmen of the club later chose to attend a suffrage meeting. Now, why do I call Winifred Mayo stone-throwing Jane Austen? because she was the first director of an Austen adaptation for the professional stage. She was the first actor to play Elizabeth Bennet on the professional stage, and she was the first actor to impersonate Jane Austen herself on the stage. Winifred Mayo was also, as we've seen, in the militant wing of the women's suffrage movement. She was born as Winifred Monk Mason in India, and she changed her name to Mayo so as not to embarrass her family when she took the stage. Her father serially gained and lost fortunes as a flautist, an opera producer, and in speculations involving hot air balloons. Fortunately, he died while in good fortune, and the surviving Monk Masons, widow and children, were left with enough money to pursue the arts, politics, and activism. Winifred's cousin was Jesse Street, the Australian suffragette, and the two corresponded. A 1940 letter from Winifred to Jesse laments, there is prejudice against women still. In the 1910s, then in her 40s, Winifred Mayo seems to have been living with her mother and her aunt, and we know this because a census taker had some trouble at their house. The Monk Mason women refused to participate. Under profession or occupation, the census taker records suffragettes, refused all information, and wrote across the census form, no vote, no census. <laughs> information obtained from neighbors. Back in 1901, Mayo's profession could have been listed as actor-director. One of her projects was directing the first professional dramatization of Jane Austen's fiction, The Bennets, a play without a plot, adapted from Jane Austen's novel Pride and Prejudice. 
The play was written by the groundbreaking Austin dramatist Rosina Filippi, although her script doesn't seem to have survived. And I talk much more about Filippi um, in my book, although we'll pass over her here tonight. The Bennetts was co-directed by Mayo and E. Hartcourt Williams. Both were also actors. Mayo doubled as the play's Elizabeth Bennett and Harcourt Williams as its Darcy. Uh, this is a detail so delicious that I cannot believe that every Janet in the world hasn't uh, pounced on it long before now. The play, uh, the first Austin adaptation for the professional stage was co-directed by its Elizabeth and its Darcy. The play was reviewed moderately positively, but Mayo's performance didn't go over quite so well. My favorite criticism of her is from the reviewer who complains that her Elizabeth is played as too pert and petulant. By 1907, Mayo had joined the women's suffrage movement. She became a co-founder of the Actresses Franchise League, which not only put on political plays, but used makeup and costumes to disguise suffragettes who were on the run from police. And again, there's Mayo on the left. The Actresses Franchise League worked work closely with the Women Writers Suffrage League. One of their most notable partnerships was the staging of a pageant of great women. It was a spectacle play with a cast of 50, just three of whom had speaking parts. Jane Austen was featured as one of the play's four learned women, the only English language writer so included. And she was among the non-speaking parts. Now, a pageant was the first play then to put Jane Austen on the stage as a character. At the play's debut in November 1909, the part of Jane Austen was performed by Winifred Mayo. It's unclear whether she ever performed the role again. What we do know is that a pageant became an international phenomenon, traveling across the country and the world with dozens, if not hundreds, of other women taking the stage as Jane Austen in the service of suffrage. Producer Edith Craig was clear about the purpose. She said, the plays have done such a lot for suffrage. They get a hold of nice, frivolous people who would die sooner than go in cold blood to meetings. But they watch the plays, get interested, and then we can rope them in for meetings. Now this may sound more like the crass manipulation of a Lydia Bennett or a Mrs. Elton, but no matter. At crucial moments of women's history, activists like Edith Craig and Winifred Mayo turn to Jane Austen to rope people in. It's astonishing that we have for so long, for almost a century, forgotten just how stone-cold Jane Austen's feminist history was. All right, now the section you've been waiting for, right? Sexing up Mr. Darcy. If Jane Austen's history has been stone-cold, however, it's also been red-hot. No matter that a couple of scholars think that maybe we've made Darcy hotter than Austen's original novel did, or that a real-life Darcy would have been, as these headlines proclaimed uh, this past February, less hot. And I don't know how many of you saw this. This is you know, a composite drawing that two scholars put together guessing what Mr. Darcy would have really looked like based on information from the novel. I think it's a lot of hooey, but it, it uh, definitely grabbed uh, some news cycle headlines for a while. But I can tell you that when Colin Firth's wet white shirt went on display at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. last year in its Will and Jane exhibition, I got to see firsthand why it was incredibly important that the shirt be protected inside of a glass case. Now, the wet white shirt Darcy uh, version of Mr. Darcy has become such an influential image that it's difficult to imagine the character B.C. or before Colin. For Janeites of a certain age, Firth's portrayal remains so swoon-worthy that any next-generation viewers who would consider going in for Matthew McFadden or Sam Riley as their Darcy of choice would seem to need their heads examined. And spending all of that time ogling, uh, I mean studying, the 1995 Pride and Prejudice, however, we've started to believe the hype that BBC screenwriter Andrew Davis created the very first sexy Darcy. And it's just not true. So in this last section of the talk, I'll walk you through why I argue that. Early stagings of Pride and Prejudice, amateur and professional, were largely presented from Elizabeth's perspective, as in the original novel. The plays were designed to showcase the heroine's strong will, attractive assertiveness, and admirable rebellion. And Mr. Darcy served as almost scenery in the play until the very end. And the, the intention seems to have been to put the audience in the same emotional boat as Elizabeth. She would eventually come to recognize that her negative, skewed view of Darcy was wrong. The play would dramatize her change of opinion and a big reveal at the end. So heroine and audience would realize together that they've been mistaken in Darcy, re-seeing him as both lovable and marriageable. 
A typical of this formula is the play by the husband and wife team, J.C. and Eileen Squires, which was first staged in 1922. The stage directions for Darcy involve him standing stiffly and silently, looking around the stage through his eyeglass. He is directed to deliver his lines solemnly, gravely, and firmly, as well as smiling superciliously and smiling at last. The character must have been broadly drawn because at one point, behind his back, Elizabeth is given directions to imitate him walking. Elizabeth exhibits wit and energy throughout, but Darcy is transformed over the course of the play from a haughty stiff to a conquered stiff. Now, the 1922 Darcy proves a milestone in another way. He was played by famed actor Ben Webster. Webster was an unusual Darcy because he was at the time 57 years old. So too was his Elizabeth Bennet on the right, played by Mary Gerald, who was a surprising 44. And another detail I just love, Ben Webster's real life wife, Dame May Whitty, was cast as the play's Mrs. Bennet. A Darcy and a Mrs. Bennet married to each other offstage is definitely something interesting, I think, in the history of Austen adaptation. But regardless how, of how Webster may have looked in the part, the Squire's Darcy, with his ogling eyeglass and his stiff walk, was certainly not written with the primary intention of making audience members lust after him. Now, the Pride Prejudice formula changed dramatically in 1935, when the play came to Broadway. Helen Jerome's dramatization became a big-budget music box theater hit, running for 219 performances. In a venue that seats 860, upwards of 180,000 may have seen the play that year. The following year, it traveled to London's West End, to the St. James Theater, where it enjoyed 317 more performances and perhaps another 300,000 theatergoers, and it toured thereafter. So we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people seeing this version. Now, the success of Jerome's Pride and Prejudice, a sentimental comedy, was at least a part, a, a case of right author, right play, right novel, <laughs> right, right play, right time. Uh, Jerome moved the play into new dramatic territory. She strengthened Darcy's passion for Elizabeth and made it visible throughout the play, while she weakened Elizabeth into something far more sensitive and even weepy. Um, Jerome, incidentally, grew up and married here in Australia, um, in Sydney, before immigrating to the United States. And you can read more about her very colorful story as well, or I'd be happy to talk about more, of that, uh, more about that in Q&A. Now, in Jerome's play, there are a few holdover elements from old stage Darcy, including acting as if he's bored and checking his fingernails. But when Jerome's Darcy comes for Elizabeth in his first proposal, he comes on strong and physically. He approaches her and stands close. He holds out his hands. He paces. He delivers his lines slowly and passionately. He refers to this love for you that consumes me. He declares, white with emotion, Elizabeth, I love you. Now, after his first failed proposals, stage directions describe him as being filled with hidden yearning, hurt for the first time in his life. When he leaves the stage, Jerome's Elizabeth sheds tears. In the second proposal scene, Elizabeth is directed twice to tremble and Darcy twice to deliver his lines humbly as well as passionately. As Elizabeth declares to him with a bowed head, I am abased. As they come closer and closer to each other physically, Elizabeth again begins to cry, and Darcy delivers the last lines of the play. Darcy, dare I ask you again? Elizabeth smiles up at him through her tears. My father says you are the sort of gentleman whom one would not dare refuse anything he condescended to ask. Darcy, moved to its depths, takes her in his arms. My cruel, my kind, oh, my lovely Elizabeth, folds her close, his lips on hers, curtain. <laughs> I'm telling you, that never gets old. That just never gets old for me. Jerome's play shamed the heroine far more than either Austen's original or the earlier dramatizations. That change wouldn't survive long in dramatic history. What changed everything was Jerome's move to his depths, Darcy. Now, Jerome created the potential for the audience's immediate sympathy with hero and heroine. Audiences didn't spend several hours imagining a pompous Darcy as a, as a distant enemy, only to decide they were wrong. Instead, they were encouraged to sympathize with Darcy's thwarted desires, enjoying watching those desires be fulfilled as he slowly conquered Elizabeth's high standards with his worthy, palpable passion. 
Jerome Starcy then required an actor who could carry the production. His name, too, was Colin. Colin Keith Johnston, an Englishman of nearly 40. Keith Johnston was best known for his Shakespearean characters, especially his avant-garde modern dress Hamlet, which he played as rebellious, snarling, cigarette-smoking, and violent. Uh, in his 20s, Keith Johnston had been one of the lovers of Tallulah Bankhead. Now, photographs of Keith Johnston as Darcy suggest an actor sensual and dashing, absolutely Laurence Olivier and Colin Firth's equal in projecting Darcy's sex appeal. When Keith Johnston leans into Elizabeth, he strikes a pose that shows he finds her far more than tolerable. Um, you see the knee kind of in the hips moving in there. That was a, a caricatured in some, there were some cartoon versions of him standing in this pose with his hip thrust. I mean, it sort of reminds me of a pre-Elvisy kind of thing going on there. So he finds her more than tolerable. In fact, in one promotional still, Keith Johnston's Darcy even seems to be sniffing Alan's Elizabeth. <laughs> Reviewers understood the change. As one put it, both the play and the performance are said to scotch the old libel that Elizabeth was strong in her resentment of Mr. Darcy's arrogance until she saw the splendors of Pemberley. Now, after Jerome and Keith Johnston, staged and filmed Darcy's became so unmistakably about heterosexuality that stiff-as-a-board Darcy's would become straight-out unthinkable. If sexy Darcy dates back to the 1930s, where does that leave us today? Are we still, as this magazine put it in 2013, in a still-wood moment for Firth's Darcy? I would just remind you that if it were 1922, things might still go in a different direction. Birth could still be reliably recast as Darcy at 57, which just happens to be the age he turns um, in September. I just happened to check that. <laughs> so maybe first should be encouraged to take a second turn as Darcy and Pride and Prejudice to Next Generation. Now, it's difficult to predict what the future holds for Austin. When you see the ways that she's been repurposed today in pop culture, from card games to video games, from zombies, to salt and pepper shakers, you may well be a little concerned. And I should add that the salt and pepper shakers are the ones there on the bottom right and that I bought them for research purposes. <laughs> My son asked me today, how much do they cost, Mom? Did you really buy those? Um, but in this year, the 200th anniversary after her death, we might sometimes be tempted to ask, what are we doing to her? Can her novels really continue to raise serious questions about art, beauty, and love, asking how to live a meaningful life in a world that is often deeply unfair when they are mixed with guinea pigs? <laughs> I love the tagline to this one. It's even more dreamy to fall in love with a furry Mr. Darcy. Again, purchased for research purposes. So even, even with this influx of cute, fluffy animals, I'm hopeful about where Austin will take us next. I'm convinced there, there remains not just more Austin to look back on, but much more to look forward to. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.